Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Roman culture saw that Christians were atheists because they, call, they, they claimed to worship a God who was alive. Everyone knew that someone had to die to become a God. There was no argument. Everyone knew how this worked. So the Christians were enemies of Rome. And this strange religion would have to be stamped out. However, the more Christians were persecuted, the faster this strange religion grew. Allow me to point out a little passage written by a brilliant man a couple years ago. Eric Erickson noted that Christianity, the worship of the Son of God, who gave his life as a sacrifice for the sin of mankind, grew and spread across the planet. Christianity spread in Asia was slow, but just as it took more than 1,000 years for Christianity to jump from Europe to Africa to the Americas, it took another 1,000 to fully penetrate into Asia. In China today, there are estimated to be more Christians quietly living out their faith at home than there are people living in the United States. Isn't that a cool fact? But think about how they're being persecuted because of this Savior we know as Jesus Christ. Christianity is a thoroughly unique religion anchored in a man, not a place. Muslims have Mecca. Jews have Jerusalem. Hindus have Badranath. The Christian has Christ. The communists feared the Pope. The Chinese feared the quiet Christian. And they feared the quiet Christian because the faith of Christ, the Lord, transforms lives. Would you agree with me there? He transforms lives. Now, instead of me preaching at you this morning, I'm going to do a little meddling if you allow me. When the world co-opts Christianity, the faith dies. When the world co-opts Christianity, the faith dies. Christian denominations that reject biblical ethics and the authenticity of the physical resurrection of Christ, without exception, are in decline. Statistically, based on its rate of decline, the last Episcopalian has already been born in the United States. And it gets worse. Other progressive mainline denominations are not very far behind. Liberal theology has become a gateway to atheism, allowing the weak in faith a soft landing into a world on their way to Judgment Day. Those rejecting this progressivism inevitably leave the dying churches and help build stronger Christian institutions. In other words, the conservative Anglican Church in America, with its refugees from the liberal Episcopal Church, is proof of this. And you might be saying, well, what does this have to do with Christmas? It has everything to do 
with Christmas. So too are the new conservative Methodists fleeing the progressive bishops and, uh, and of the United Methodist Church. Instead of man pruning the church through persecution, making it stronger, God uses that theology to prune the church of heresy. You see, in a similar fashion, those multiple groups that eagerly embrace liberal concepts while rejecting the word of God are astonished that they're not growing. They have no clue. Why aren't we growing? Why aren't we building? Why aren't we becoming more in tune with what Christ wants for us? Because they're not following him. People are deserting the buildings that once housed vibrant congregations that sought the glory of the risen Christ. These buildings are being transformed into religious mausoleums filled with the decaying theology that reminds everyone who sees them that a living faith once lived there and it was practiced there. But all that now remains is a parched, stale husk bearing the stench of death. And those churches that thought that a crowd was the same as a church learned too late that when we bring the world into the church, spiritual vitality leaves. They are no longer thriving. They're no longer following the precepts and the laws of God. Thinking that substituting second-rate musical entertainment for the preaching of the word will build strong saints is so very wrong. So very wrong. Depreciating prayer and the reading of the word while attempting to have more coffee time can never address the deficits of the human heart. But here is the wonderful truth concerning the faith of Christ the Lord. Whenever the Savior reigns, lives are transformed. And though some imagine that being progressive and turning from the simple faith in the risen Lord, they are showing their superior intellect, so to speak. The faith seeps out and touches some. Perhaps people look down upon the gentle, quiet believers gathered in barrios in the Philippines as insignificant or maybe uninspiring. Or perhaps they despise those saints united to worship in a modest house in Pakistan or in a quiet grove on the outskirts of an Indian city or that noisy assembly of worshipers of the risen Christ gathered under the thatched roof in the African plains. But know this, there is power in those gatherings. There is absolute power in those gatherings. Power that once marked the Christians gathered in Canada and the United States. You see, the power of the faith is not seen in towering spires or padded pews. It is shown in transformed lives. And all of this began in a sheepcote in a Judean hill overlooking Bethlehem almost 2,000 years ago. So in the moments afforded 
by our time together today, I want to explore the event that brought the Son of God to earth. I want us to remember together the event that initiated our joy, which is expressed so vibrantly, especially as we observe Christmas. I am convinced that you and I will have a Merry Christmas only if we embrace, if we embrace the one whom the Father sent to provide redemption to this fallen world. I am certain that only if we know this one who was born to a virgin, barely into her teen years, that we can experience peace on this earth and a life that was given. Amen? Amen. Nothing was ideal for this young couple that had begun their life together. The marriage of Mary and Joseph was arranged by their parents as would have been common in that far distant day. The time for the formalities of their being united was set by others. They had little say in the matter. She didn't have dreams of planning precisely how the ceremony was going to be conducted. That was dictated by the expectations of the community and the decision of those parents. You see, the young couple accepted the wisdom of their parents, just as they accepted that their parents were seeking what was best for them, what would give them the best possible advantage in beginning their life together. Thus, they didn't rebel or argued that they wanted what they wanted or that their parents didn't know what they were doing. There was no foot stomping and there was no demands that the things be done as they wanted them to be. They trusted. But all those wonderful plans that their parents had made were tossed aside when God intervened. The story has been told so often that we are assured that we know what happened. Dr. Luke writes, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this time. She was troubled by that saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be for her. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of God and the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. But the interesting part of this was Mary's response. She said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And of course the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Talk about throwing a wrench into your plans, right? 
They're not even married. She hasn't even been with her fiancé. And now she was to be pregnant? How would she explain this turn of events? And what was worse, where was Joseph in all of this? He wasn't even consulted as to how he would feel. Individuals in our society wouldn't go for that. I wasn't consulted. That offends me. I'm sorry, I, I can't do that. No, thank you for asking me. Just, this is how it's going to be. Matthew provides us with the insight we need in order to see this change of plans from Joseph's perspective. The first gospel informs us now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from all their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to to the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So there would be no wedding ceremony, no torchlight parade when the bridegroom would go to receive his bride. No gathering of the wedding party at the groom's house. No seven days of wedding festivities. There would be nothing near a public recognition that Mary and Joseph were even husband and wife. They would simply begin living together without the benefit of the blessing conferred by the community. There was no hiding the fact that Mary was with child and that without open public ceremony to celebrate the joyous occasion. There was just an acknowledgement of the obvious fact that she was pregnant. People would be left to speculate as to the circumstances as she would bear shame before the community ever after. And I wouldn't deliberately offend tradition, but God did. I wouldn't allow the fate of all history to rest on a teenage girl, but God allowed history to rest on a child who was no older than 12 or 13 years old. So when people say, oh, I'm, I'm too young or I'm too old, we're not putting our faith in God because God can do anything he wants. He can use a child, and he does so often. I wouldn't set the stage so that my son would be ridiculed as an illegitimate child right up to his death, but that was what happened in the life of the Son of God. I wouldn't arrange matters so that people could snicker behind the backs of Joseph and Mary at their supposed degeneracy. But God did. Existence was hard in that ancient day. 
without the addition of struggling while trying to make a life and raise children, without the added burden of gossip about moral standards or gossip that sullied the character of my child. If I was God, surely I would not have arranged things differently. But then, I'm not God, and neither are you. God had a plan. There must be a reason the father chose to make this arrangement for his son to enter into this life. I can't know all that lay within the wisdom of the father, but I can read the word and perhaps discern some of the reason that lay behind his choice in this matter. Perhaps you will recall an incident that occurred during the ministry of Jesus concerning and conducted in Judea. He was compared to rebuke the religious leaders to point out their prejudice. And Jesus said, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Did you see that change? Jesus was charged with having being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This was apparently an ongoing problem for the religious leaders of that time. Elsewhere, we read that the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. How shocking. But that was Jesus' ministry. He came to one and all. He witnessed to all. It didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter where you were from. Your political standing, your social standing. Jesus came to save all. At one point during his ministry in Judea, Jesus delivered a parable, adding a pointed commentary so that no one would miss what he was trying to say. We need to hear what he said at that time. This is the parable of, and Jesus' commentary as Matthew recorded it. It says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said the first. But Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. When we consider the events recorded in our text here this morning, as well as events in the various other portions of the world we have just reviewed, it becomes evident that God is quite deliberate in choosing to work in the lives of those whom the world sees unfit to have, have done so. So who are we to judge? Who are we to think that we understand all of God's plans? Who are we to stomp out those that we don't feel are worthy? 
Paul testified, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. But God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on your own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Interesting. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient to you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's an easy thing to say that we are content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. But it's quite another thing that we actually live with such conditions. The apostle challenges us who are followers of Christ when he writes, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, but not were many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human beings might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, of you who are in Christ Jesus, who became so as wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So it matters not what I imagine or what I have accomplished. What matters is what the Lord has accomplished through me, what the Lord has accomplished through his plans of sending Christ to earth to be our Savior. That's it. God delights in revealing his power, especially to those who are humble enough to accept that he is God. And more importantly, they also know that they are not God. See, in this context, let us recall the words God spoke through his prophet saying, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. His name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God works in the weakness of people. 
He accomplishes his greatest work in those whom we imagine to be least capable. God does this so that he receives the glory rather than the individual being glorified. God is warning us to avoid the guilt of stolen glory. Recall, we need to recall how God said through Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Nevertheless, it is comforting to know that God is at work in your life, especially if you are small enough to allow him to be God. Surely this truth of God's work in the life of the humble is evidence as it is revealed in the 138th Psalm. And that Psalm teaches us, through the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. God works in our lives as we humble ourselves and permit him to do only what he can do. God is always working in the life of his humble servant. And he is working in your life even now as you humble yourself under his mighty hand. Amen? At Christmas, pastors and preachers tell again the old familiar story of how God's own son was born to a virgin. Everyone in our nation has likely heard the story at some point. But the churches nevertheless expect their pastors to focus such attention on the story of how God intervened in history. And few would even dare resist meeting the expectation of the people who are seated in the pews. Each one of them will attempt to address the coming of the Son of God from their own perspective. Some will speak of the benefits of Jesus' coming, and there are truly rich blessings because he has come the first time. Others will focus on the necessity of Jesus' coming, and without question, there was a great need for the Son of God to come. Had he not come, we would have been left in the darkness and left to our broke condition. If you are redeemed, if you have received God's gift of life, you are a son and daughter of God. You have an inheritance. And this inheritance is yours because of what God accomplished through sending his son and of what that is representative of. It is the atonement of our sin. Therefore, Scripture presents the promise of God summarized When the apostle writes, If in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Christ the Lord extends to each person this offer of a priceless gift. It is free, but it is not cheap. It is free, but it is not cheap. The Savior offers the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this Christmas season, we need to know that Christmas is not about giving gifts. It's not about giving. Through that is a joyous opportunity for us to bless others. 
Christmas centers around receiving the priceless gift of life that is extended to all through Christ the Lord. Christmas is not about gathering with family to watch a parade and to feast on a table groaning with the fruits of the land, though that is always an occasion to celebrate. Especially we as Baptists. Anytime we get a chance to eat, let's do it. Right? Because Christ was born to a virgin, history is at an end. Light broke forth in Bethlehem, and that light could not be contained. Light is in the world now, shaping the world, and will be made more full and increasingly real. It is as the apostle of love is written, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Christ has come, and he will come again. Christ has come, and he will return. It is the promise of this season, and every tear will be dried, and all things will be made new. Merry Christmas. Dave. Hallelujah, because of Christ, a better day is coming. May you have a blessed Christmas day. Let's stand together as we close and sing. Father, as we leave your house this morning, I pray as we celebrate the traditions of Christmas, we remember the tradition of you sending your Son to die in our place, Lord, so that we could experience life everlasting. Thank you for our time here today, and I pray that you will shed light on those opportunities that you have placed before us to share the good news, to share the hope, to share the joy that we have through our relationship to Jesus Christ. And I pray if there is someone who does not know you, that today will be that day where they will come to know you and to praise you and to give you the glory that you righteously deserve. Thank you, Lord, again for our time. Keep us safe as we go home. And Lord, we love you and thank you for all your blessings. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Merry Christmas.
The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.